Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 27th day of January, 2008. I'd like to remind all my listeners that the links to the documentation cited in today's episode can be garnered from my website, www.corbettreport.com. Simply click on the Episodes tab, and you'll find a link to the documentation list for today's episode, sorted by time index. On the website, you'll also be able to find articles and videos from the Corbett Report. And now it's time for the real news. Today's first story comes from Infowars.net, January 25, 2008. Headline, Did Ron Paul Win the Louisiana Caucus? Complications and botched ballots have led many to believe that the congressman actually came out as the top candidate on Tuesday. The Ron Paul campaign issued a statement yesterday charging the Louisiana GOP with failure to properly determine voter eligibility and calling on the LA GOP to count all the ballots submitted in the caucus. The failure of the Louisiana GOP to properly determine who was and wasn't eligible to vote threw the entire process into disarray, said Ron Paul campaign manager Lou Moore. The party needs to correct this mistake by counting all the votes immediately and releasing the results. The LA GOP released preliminary results of the caucus on late Wednesday with a carefully worded press release stating that delicate candidates endorsed by U.S. Senator John McCain appear to have won more state convention delegate positions than any other presidential slate at the Louisiana caucuses. This gave the impression that McCain won the caucus with Paul in second, but as the party then had to explain, due to its own mistakes, some 500 to 650 voters over five di different districts were forced to file provisional ballots, which could change the outcome of the entire election. Today's second story comes from the Daily Mail, January 25, 2008. Headline, Alert over jab for girls as two die following cervical cancer vaccination. A jab that could be given to hundreds of thousands of schoolgirls this autumn was at the center of a safety scare last night following the deaths of two young women. European regulators are investigating the sudden and unexpected deaths of the women who received Gardasil, one of two jabs to protect against cer cervical cancer licensed for use in the UK. The European Medicines Agency said one of the young women who received Gardasil died in Germany, while the other was in Austria. It has not released their ages. It follows the deaths of three young women aged 12, 19, and 22 who were reported to have died in the U.S. days after Gardasil was administered, with 1,700 patients suffering adverse reactions. Today's final story comes from Wired.com, January 18, 2008, headline, Pentagon Explores Human Fear Chemicals, Scare Sensors, Contagious Stress in the Works. American military researchers are working to uncover and harness the most terrifying chemical imaginable, that most primal odor, the scent of fear. Pheromones are chemicals released by animals as signals to their own kind, for sex, for territorial marking, and more. They're often detected in the olfactory membranes. But there's more to pheromones than attraction. Many animals have an alarm pheromone which is used to signal danger. Aphids, for example, use it to cause their fellow lice to flee. Now the U.S. Army is trying to track down and harness people's smell of fear. 
The military has backed a study on the identification and isolation of human alarm pheromones, which focused on the preliminary identification of steroids of interest in human fear sweat. The financial house of cards collapses, and the overinflated stock market plunges into a Great Depression. A financial panic grips the world. For the majority, it means the interminable line outside factory gates, desperately hoping for a job that rarely comes. It means hunger and the march of the unemployed in the nation's capital. With acute domestic problems, America would now isolate herself more than ever from the international scene. It started in America, but practically overnight an economic blizzard swept the world. In Japan, France, Britain, always the unemployed, the soup kitchens, the grinding poverty, and the despair. Welcome to this 30th episode of the Corbett Report entitled The Depression Cometh. The foregoing clip which you just listened to was, of course, an extract on the Great Depression from a Britannica.com online article about that subject. The Great Depression, as we have all long been taught, was a direct result of the stock market crash of 1929 and the ensuing turmoil on business throughout the globe. And as we have all long been taught, such a Great Depression could never reoccur because there are now strict financial regulations which have come into place to make sure that the market will never collapse in such a way. Or will it? The last few years has seen concern that the global economic system is built like a house of cards, each layer financed on a system of easy credit and low-interest loans. And now it looks like the credit crunch is causing that to collapse. It's caused the worst day for the world's financial markets since the September 2001 terrorist attacks. It's perfectly understandable. I mean, there is just no good news out there. Whether you, you can look to the US, you can look to, to continental Europe, and you look here at home, there just isn't anything to, 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 to hang your hat on. We've, we see doom and gloom, credit markets in, in, in a, still in a woeful, woeful state. We have uh, worries in the US. The, uh, President Bush's uh, plan to try and get things moving seems to have gone down like a hole in the head. Germany's Deutsche Börse and France's Cacaron had their biggest falls in more than seven years. But stocks plunged not only in Europe, but also in Brazil, India and Hong Kong. Some say the panic is being driven by hedge funds. Everybody knows that uh, economic activity is slowing down. Everybody knows that corporate profitability is under pressure. A lot of what we're seeing at the moment, I think, is hedge funds selling short, i.e. selling shares they haven't got in the hope that they'll be able to buy them back more cheaply later on. Regardless of the origin of the biggest sales, the fact remains that their effect is rippling around the world. With no one immune, there are concerns falling financial markets could turn regional economic slowdowns into a global recession. Philip Hampshire, BBC News. Now, in case you've been living under a rock for the past week, what that clip referred to was the stock market crash which was precipitated in Europe and Asia on January 22nd of last week. 
in which stock markets like the FTSE in Britain tumbled in the largest single-day fall in stock prices since September 11th, which precipitated an emergency meeting of the Federal Open Markets Committee of the Federal Reserve, which decided to slash the federal funds rate by 75 basis points. This led to a series of startling assertions by many key economists that we are in some serious financial trouble, including George Soros, who you might remember from episode 16 of the Corbett Report, who this week has gone on record to say, for example, in the firstpost.co.uk article, Soros predicts worst recession for 50 years. He says the situation is much more serious than any other financial crisis since the end of World War II. In a financialtimes.com article entitled Soros Accuses Fed of Panic Rate Cut, Soros says that the emergency 75 basis point cut in the federal funds rate by the Federal Reserve was an example of the Fed acting in a rather panicky way because people fear there are hidden problems. And in an International Herald Tribune article from January 23rd headlined U.S. in role of wounded giant at Davos, Soros was quoted as saying, The current crisis is not only the bust that follows the housing boom, it's basically the end of a 60-year period of continuing credit expansion based on the dollar as the reserve currency. Now, all of that is a flurry of information, and perhaps it might be a little bit like gobbledygook to you, as it largely is to me. I am not an expert in financial matters, but I think we are all likely very quickly to become equated with the basic precepts of what's happening in international financial markets, because it is going to affect all of us. As the general tenor of today's episode might denote, we are heading towards some serious economic problems that may result in a sustained global depression. And although there are very few people living on the planet today who have ever experienced a depression, I'm sure we would all like to keep it that way. So in an effort to inform ourselves a little bit about what is going on today, let's try to take a look at what is happening what the roots of the problem are, and what the real solutions for what's happening in the markets today is. To that end, let's start today by investigating the subprime mortgages, which, as we all know from episode 13 of the Corbett Report, melted down in August of last year, resulting in chaos and panic in the markets. That panic had somewhat stabilized over the preceding months, but had come to a head last week because of a confluence of problems, including pessimistic data about the American economy. And also there are indications that this might have at least in part been precipitated by a mysterious rogue trader from Socgen in France, who has been termed a genius of fraud for having precipitated $7 billion of losses in Socgen, a French trading company, by engaging in fictitious trades in the derivatives market. And it's an extremely suspicious story that I suggest you keep your eye on. Most suspicious of all because apparently this rogue trader who managed to lose $7 billion apparently was not even personally profiting from these transactions. An extremely bizarre story. And again, the timing of all of this is rather suspect, as the repeated pronouncements by George Soros in the media this week might indicate. The downfall in the markets takes place at the exact time of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Again, highly interesting timing, to say the least, for this economic disaster. But again, let's start by taking a look at the subprime mortgage meltdown. 
Subprime mortgages refer to mortgages that were offered to borrowers of questionable credit history who were offered introductory teaser rates that made houses seem affordable to people who could not really afford them, a fact that came home quite literally after these same people found that they could not meet mortgage payments after the interest rates increased and the banks were forced to foreclose. The incredible number of foreclosures in the subprime mortgage housing market obviously caused a lot of the problems that we're seeing today, but that's just the basis of what happened in the subprime mortgage fiasco. What really precipitated the meltdown that we're seeing right now in the markets at large is the creation of a bizarre financial instrument known as derivatives, which played a large part in this current crisis. In order to start getting a handle of what derivatives are and how they played a part in the subprime mortgage meltdown, let's take a listen to this clip from CNBC, which talks about mortgage-backed securities and how these extremely shaky financial instruments were able to attain AAA credit ratings. How do you create a subprime derivative and how do you blow it up? Senior economics reporter Steve Leisman uh, knows, and he's here to explain with the help of the axis of easel here. Stephen? We call this burning down the house yes. because that's sort of what's been happening. This looks like the books of some hedge funds or investment banks we know. Right now it does, Now that they've had these, these, these uh, uh, subprimes blow up. But what we have to do first is we have to create it first. Then we'll show you how it went bad. So right. work with me on this, Bill. If I'm you don't you. understand anything here, you let me know. I always okay? do. You start off very simply here. You take a bunch of mortgages here, okay? Joe, Fred, Jane, okay? They're $100,000, $200,000 mortgage. You put it into one big thing. We call it a mortgage-backed security. Say it's $50 million worth, okay? Right. That's step one. We I'm got more. You. We got I'm more to go here. I'm with you. You're okay. with me on this. That is this Let's the easy go. part. That's the easy part. Okay. Now, you take a bunch of these mortgage-backed securities, and you put it into one very big thing. You see, that's a fifty million dollar piece. That's a fifty million dollar piece. The one thing about all these guys here is they're all subprime borrowers. They're all their credit is bad, or there's something about it that doesn't make it prime. Okay. All of them. Right. Now, watch. Interesting thing we're going to do right. here. Is remember these are subprime credits, right? Yes. yes. We're going to make some AAA paper out of this. Well, you just watch. <laughs> We're going to make some good paper. So now we have this thing here, a one billion dollar vehicle here, right? Okay. Now's the tricky part because what we're going to do is we're going to slice it up into five different pieces. Got okay. It. Five different pieces. Call them tranches. Call them levels. Call them what you will. But the key here is they're not divided by Jane's is here and Joe's is here, right? Jane is actually in all five pieces here. Why? Because what we're doing here is your triple B minus tranche here, they're going to take the first losses from whoever is in the pool. Somebody stops paying, okay, all the way up to about 8% of the losses these guys are assuming. So what okay. they're saying is, look, you got it, you got losses in your thing, I will absorb those losses and pay you for them. In return, you're going to pay me a relatively high interest rate. All the way up to AAA, where... 24% of the losses are below them, okay? So it, the whole 24% of it has to go bad before they see any losses. And they get, you will see, a relatively low interest rate. Now, uh, what is AAA quality, paper? Right. Here's what we've done. Here's the magic of this as far as the, the Wall Street's concerned. We have taken subprime paper and created GE quality paper out of this, okay? We have a AAA tranche here, okay? Now, we're going to show how it's blown up here. Here's a little nuclear bomb action there, okay? Here's the issue when it was issued. Your AAA paper had a yield of about 5.3%. 
Now it's seven point seven. Now, now it's five point four five percent. Okay, it. so it's risen. All right, but look at what's happened to the triple B minus paper. Seven point seven five around there when it was issued, and now it's thirty percent. Wow, tremendous losses in there and right. gains for the guys who come in now and hold this paper. What's interesting about this is this thing suggests that there will be 80 or 90% losses in this, and all they've been is like in the 12% range. So some guys are seeing a lot of value in here. Let's look at some of the keys to the blow up here now, Bill. Okay. Foreclosures and delinquencies have been on the rise right. quite a bit. That's deteriorated that triple B tranche right there, and, and really gone up a little bit into the, in, triple, minus, into the triple B. If housing worsens, these things get worse from here. The big question here are ratings downgrades. If that triple A paper suddenly becomes seen as, as, as B paper or even just single A paper, it's going to affect the entire else goes capital right. structure. So that's what you do. You take a whole bunch of mortgages, you put them in a pot, and you slice them up by losses. Then you sell them out there, and the blow-up part has come because of a lack of belief not an actuality, but a lack of belief in the creditworthiness of these subprime borrowers. There has to be a lot of faith in some of these uh, investments that they make. As, as they said in the song, we're in for nasty weather. I apologize if that clip is difficult to follow. It does contain a lot of jargon, and I must admit that I would probably be confused myself, but I would recommend that you go to my homepage, CorbettReport.com, and find the link to the YouTube video from which that audio comes. And I think the graphics that accompany that presentation might help to make it a little bit more understandable. But the key point to gain from this is that the subprime mortgage meltdown was the result of a problem in the derivatives market. Again, derivatives are an exotic financial instrument which have really only arisen in the last couple of decades and are highly unregulated, highly leveraged investment vehicles, which are really only an option for institutional lenders but extremely risky. And to begin to get a grasp of why that is, let's turn to some articles. For example, we have an article entitled Global Economic Collapse Likely, Derivatives Bubble About to Burst from September 9th, 2001. Now this article was released talking about the already at that time inflated derivatives market and how if the market were to unravel, things would come to a crashing halt very quickly in the financial markets around the globe. Of course, this article was released on September 9th, 2001, and as we all know, a couple of days later there were events to take place in New York City and Washington which would change the face of the world, including its financial landscape. Again, the stock market having tumbled hugely after September 11th and an emergency meeting of the Fed having pumped billions of dollars into the markets to try to maintain them, changing things and the outlook of what was going to happen. But in September 9th, 2001, it was already recognized that the derivatives market was an extremely dangerous and risky market to be developing. And this article helps to give a grasp of that situation, including this, which is a rather straightforward introduction to derivatives and what they really are. Let's take a listen to a part of this article. It reads in part, quote, Imagine you have saved up $5,000 of risk capital you want to sow into the markets in the hopes of reaping some profits. The conventional stock investing strategy is simply to find some undervalued stock and buy it. You do your due diligence, find an undervalued stock trading at a fair multiple with good future prospects, and you buy your shares of the company. For this example's sake, let's assume that your investment in XYZ company was made at a share price of $50. 
your $5,000 bought you 100 shares of XYZ company. Now that your capital has been successfully deployed, let's fast forward six months into the future and examine two scenarios. In the win scenario, XYZ rallies 50% and you win some healthy capital gains on your investment. In the loss scenario, XYZ plunges 50% and you begin to feel like a typical NASDAQ investor today. In the win scenario, when you are simply buying stock outright, your gains are easy to calculate. Your 100 shares of XYZ that you purchased at $50 ran up 50% to $75, leaving you with an equity position worth $7,500, a straightforward $2,500 profit. In the loss scenario, XYZ plunged to $25, vaporizing one half of your original capital deployed. Your shares are still worth $2,500, however, even after the share price implosion of XYZ. This clear-cut equity example, which we all intuitively understand, is a pure unleveraged position that is most useful to contrast with the extraordinary risks and potential rewards and losses inherent in derivatives trading. Next, let's work back in time to your original decision to deploy your $5,000 of risk capital. Let's assume that money is not so super important to you and that you have a very high risk tolerance, so you decide to place the money in options instead of stock. You still like XYZ company and its prospects, but you crave higher leverage, and you're willing to accept higher risks of loss to attain that leverage. You fully realize the risks in playing options are very high, but you will not shed any tears if your $5,000 speculation doesn't pay off. You do some research and find that you can buy a standard call option, the right to purchase XYZ stock at a stock price of $55 for seven months into the future for $1 per option. Each option contract on XYZ represents options on 100 shares, so at $1 per share, a contract runs $100. With your $5,000 of risk capital, you can buy 50 option contracts, yielding a total span of control of 5,000 shares. The enormous leverage inherent in derivatives such such as options is immediately apparent. If you buy XYZ outright, you can only afford 100 shares with your 5,000. On the other hand, if you play the risky derivatives market through call options on XYZ, you can control the gains and losses on 5,000 shares, a staggering 50 times increase in absolute leverage. With leverage through derivatives comes the potential for far greater returns, but also far greater losses. Leverage is always a double-edged sword. The option, a derivative, derives its values from the movement in its underlying asset, the actual shares of XYZ. Since you bought 50 contracts, each representing 100 shares worth of XYZ call options, your $5,000 speculation has grown into $100,000 in six months. Through the use of derivatives, your dramatic increase in leverage yielded an awesome $95,000 profit instead of the $2,500 you would have made through outright XYZ stock ownership. When the markets move your way, leverage attained through derivatives can be utterly exhilarating. End quote. Again, that's extremely complicated and a flurry of information, so I suggest that you go check out that article and read through that description a couple of times to get an idea of what's really going on in these transactions. But suffice it to say that derivatives are extremely leveraged financial instruments, which mean that when you win, you win big, and when you lose, you lose big. The problem with these extremely risky and highly leveraged derivatives is that when you bundle them together like the mortgage-backed securities in the subprime mortgage fiasco, 
you not only multiply their inherent riskiness and leveraged positions, but you also take an inherently risky asset which underlies them, that is the subprime mortgages, and leverage it out again. And then through some financial wizardry, that's suddenly made into triple-A paper by the wizards of Wall Street. So let's pick up the thread of this story from an article from BBC News on 4th of March 2003, headline, Buffett Warns on Investment Time Bomb. The rapidly growing trade in derivatives poses a mega-catastrophic risk for the economy, and most shares are still too expensive, legendary investor Warren Buffett has warned. The world's second richest man made the comments in his famous and plain-spoken annual letter to shareholders, excerpts of which have been published by Fortune magazine. The derivatives market has exploded in recent years, with investment banks selling billions of dollars worth of these investments to clients as a way to offload or manage market risk. But Mr. Buffett argues that such highly complex financial instruments are time bombs and financial weapons of mass destruction that could harm not only their buyers and sellers, but the whole economic system. Now let's fast forward and pick up the story on November 18, 2006 from an article from Bloomberg.com with the headline, Derivatives Trading Source to $370 Trillion. And this article goes on to detail how the notional value of the derivatives market in 2006 had already ballooned to $370 trillion. Again, dozens of times the entire annual budget of the federal government of the United States. A staggering sum of money, and of course not actually reflective of the real value of the underlying assets which these derivatives derive their value from. Again, these derivatives are highly leveraged financial vehicles, and the $370 trillion mar derivatives market only represents billions of dollars of actual underlying asset value. This discrepancy is huge, and thus the inherent value of many of the key players in the market is vastly overrated. We've seen that in recent months with bank after bank having serious problems as they try to write off their, their exposure to the subprime mortgage securities. This is a major problem that is unraveling now, and the financial weapons of mass destruction which Buffett warned us of five years ago are really coming true today. These are going off like bombs in the marketplace, and the crisis that we've seen develop just in the last week is probably the tip of the iceberg as things really start to unravel. So now that we've seen the real underlying basis for what's causing the problem in the markets today, let's turn to what is being offered as the solution. As we've seen, the Federal Reserve, which listeners to the Corbett Report will know is a privately held central bank, which creates money out of nothing, slashed the federal funds rate by 75 basis points in an emergency meeting this week. That is a huge cut, the largest in over 20 years to be exact, and one with broad implications for the economy as a whole. Let's step back for a moment and define some of the terms. What is the federal funds rate? That is the rate at which banks lend to each other when they are experiencing problems with meeting their reserve requirements for whatever reason. Now, the Federal Reserve has no direct control over those rates, which are determined by the banks themselves, but the Federal Reserve sets a nominal value for the federal funds rate, and they manipulate the value of that interest rate of interbank loans by pumping money into the American economy. 
Again, as you will remember from episode 5 of the Corbett Report, they do this by buying U.S. Treasury bonds on the open market from whoever is selling. And to pay for those U.S. Treasury bonds, they use money that they create out of thin air. They type a number of ones and zeros into a computer, and money pours into the account of the person who's selling those bonds. That money is thus deposited in the system and can be loaned out time and time again through the magic of fractional reserve banking. In effect, when the Federal Reserve says they're cutting the Fed funds rate by 75 basis points, what that really means is they're going to inject billions and billions of dollars into the American economy, something that they've already been doing and central banks around the world have been doing for the last several months in a frenzied attempt to keep the markets from collapsing entirely. Hundreds of billions of dollars of liquidity has been pumped into the markets around the world over the last several months since the subprime mortgage meltdowns first started to break into the mainstream media. Now, what is the end result of pumping all this money into the economy? Inflation. Again, inflation is one of the key ideas of monetary policy, which all of us will be equated with very shortly. As you might remember from episode 13 of the Corbett Report, Webster Tarpley talked about hyperinflation in the Weimar Republic of the interwar years in Germany, where it would literally take trillions of marks to buy even a postage stamp. That kind of hyperinflationary spiral might seem far-fetched today, but the calamitous effects of all this inflation on the U.S. dollar might actually precipitate a huge crisis in which foreign investors start to withdraw their holdings in U.S. dollars in their foreign reserves currency accounts. Again, we've already seen China just last year threatening the, quote, nuclear option of selling their U.S. dollar reserves. This remains a very real possibility. And as Soros said from that article, which I mentioned earlier, the U.S. dollar may already have lost its status as the world reserve currency. That means, simply put, that the U.S. dollar might already be headed towards the hyperinflationary spiral death path that all fiat currencies always follow. Again, this might sound a little bit like gobbledygook, and I apologize if I'm trying to get this information out too quickly. But again, all of this is absolutely key to understanding what's going on in the markets today. So let's step back for a moment and focus a little bit more on inflation. Let's listen to an excerpt from a documentary from G. Edward Griffin, entitled, quite simply, Inflation, in which he describes a little bit about what inflation really is. Let's listen to that clip. Most people think that inflation is the rising price level of goods and services, but this is not strictly so. For the rising prices are a result of inflation, not inflation itself. Inflation is defined as an increase in the volume of money and credit relative to available goods resulting in a substantial and continuing rise in the general price level. There's nothing deep or hard to grasp about inflation. When the amount of money and credit in circulation increases at the same rate as productivity increases the amount of goods available, prices of the available goods remain generally stable. But should the amount of money and credit in circulation increase without a corresponding increase in the amount of available goods, prices of available goods will be forced upward by the inflated volume of money and credit. In an exchange economy such as the United States, 
People exchange their labor or goods and services for the thing called money, which they then use to purchase the goods and services they desire. If the items used as money have no actual value, nor are they representative of and redeemable in something that does have actual value, the money itself cannot be considered real wealth. As you can imagine, the documentary then goes on to talk about how the American dollar is in fact propped up by nothing, is created out of nothing by private bankers from nothing. However, of course, the dollar used to be propped up by the gold standard, which was uh, arranged in the aftermath of World War II under the Bretton Woods monetary system, pegging the U.S. dollar at $35 an ounce of gold. But that system, of course, fell apart in the 1970s. And ever since then, a fiat money, that is to say money created out of nothing, has come to replace it, and administration after administration has been able to print as much money as they want to do anything that they want, including invading foreign countries illegally. And there has been nothing to stop them from doing this. If the money was backed by a physical, tangible asset such as gold, for example, at least there would be some physical impediment to them printing as much money as they want. However, in this current age, the U.S. government can continue to issue treasury bonds knowing that the Federal Reserve will continue to buy them and continue to put their funny money into circulation. It seems that a lot of the blame for the ills and travails of the current economy can be laid squarely at the footstep of the Federal Reserve. So this would be, of course, one of the major issues on the campaign trail, wouldn't it? Well, you would certainly think so. But trying to get answers from most of the presidential candidates about the Federal Reserve is not exactly on a high priority le level for most of the corporate-controlled media. The closest we can get is some of the recent stories that have emerged from the campaign trail about the recent problems in the economy and what the candidates have to say about it. And for a representative sample of what the candidates are saying, let's turn to, for example, John McCain, who has become the corporate-controlled media's anointed one for the Republican presidential candidacy. And let's see what he has to say about the Federal Reserve and their emergency 75-point Fed funds rate cut. I still believe our fundamental underpinnings are, of our economy are strong, but it's obvious that we are facing challenges which will require actions such as the Federal Reserve took today. Now let's contrast that hogwash with some actual information from the man that my listeners will recognize as the only real candidate for the presidency of the United States, Ron Paul. As we all know, Ron Paul is not a fan of the Federal Reserve, and there are some excellent videos online that you can check out of Ron Paul confronting Ben Bernanke, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, in his capacity as a member of the Congressional Financial Services Committee. And you can see him confronting Ben Bernanke about the inflation tax, that is to say the amount of money that people will have to pay in inflation for the reckless monetary policy of the Federal Reserve in printing money out of nothing. But let's listen to this clip from the Jim Cramer Mad Money Show from December 14th, 2007, in which Jim Cramer interviews Ron Paul and finds out what a Ron Paul administration could do to help abolish the Federal Reserve. All right, when you screw up, you get voted out of office. When I screw up, my, they pull my show. When the Federal Reserve screws up, what happens? 
What, what they do is they just go back to doing the same thing again and you never hear it. They hide from the public and they talk about wonderful things and they blame somebody else. I mean, even Greenspan now is taking very little responsibility for the contribution that he has made to these financial bubbles and they're not held accountable. That's why I don't like this monetary system that we have. All right, the Federal Reserve's current chairman, Ben Bernanke, started his job in January of 2006. That's exactly when the worst mortgages began to be propagated. Why has our Federal Reserve chairman never addressed? Why did he not see this coming? Why didn't he help us as a country? Well, he didn't see it coming, and he didn't do anything about it. It was coming a long time before that. You know, we had interest rates down to 1%. The overnight rates were down to 1% early in this decade, and that started the ball rolling. That's when the inflation really started. That was creating the bubble, and it just got worse, and it climaxed after 6 and 7, and then, of course, it ended in, in you know, during this year. The last year, there's been total chaos. Do you think they do enough homework? I'm sitting here watching a country where people were, it's possible that 7 million people could lose their homes, uh, and yet they seem to be consumed by tinkering with the LIBOR rate, with three-month treasuries. Uh, do they not see the bigger picture that you and I see? Well, I think they believe in themselves too much. I, I don't have that much confidence that any central bank can do what a lot of people expect to do. Uh, how do they know what the interest rates would be? The, the one thing I always hear about the people who critique the Fed is the Fed is he, it has too low interest rates or they're too high. But I think the market should be involved. If you believe in free enterprise and capitalism, you should have the market forces determining interest rates. It's the distortion of interest rates by manipulating the money supply that causes these bubbles to form. Why is it that the message that you just talked about, which frankly is a message that I try to get across, but I'm always afraid that no one will listen because, well, let's just be honest, a lot of people think is boring. Why is it that people are turning on to YouTube to see you talk about something that everybody else thinks is too boring? Because, because they're waking up, because they know there's a lot of inflation, people's standard of living is going down, and we have a world crisis building over the dollar, the dollar is going down in value, and we're dependent on borrowing money that we've created and sent overseas, so we're dependent on borrowing money from China now, and the people are waking up, and the young people realize it, and they understand what they're inheriting, and they understand the monetary system a lot more than a lot of people in Washington believe. Can we have just actual hearings about what went wrong with this issue of mortgages? Call not just the Fed chairman, but other Fed important presidents and governors who I think have been oblivious on this issue and actually just held them accountable in front of the American people so we can get to the bottom of what is the worst crisis we've seen since the SNL crisis in 1990. You know, I think we have a, a pretty good chance. I think Barney Frank, our chairman of the banking committee, he's very open to this. He has done more than any other previous chairman has in the last several decades. So I'm optimistic that he's willing to do this, and I've continued to work with him. And I think we can get more hearings, but you just can't accomplish it overnight. Unfortunately not. But at least the congressman is bringing real issues to the presidential debate and for the first time openly proclaiming that the Federal Reserve needs to be abolished altogether. This is exciting indeed. It's important for you to know, and if you take away anything from this podcast today, it's only this. It's that the financial oligarchy is making this happen. These people are not stupid. They know what they are doing, and they know that printing money like this will eventually come with a price. And that price may be a hyperinflationary spiral that will lead to the next Great Depression, from which there will be no escape. 
This is an extremely important point, and I'd like to make that point by turning to an article from Infowars.net from 2006 entitled Economic Expert, We Are Already in an Engineered Recession. This is an article written on the occasion of an interview by Alex Jones of Jerome Corsi, who I have interviewed myself about the North American Union. Again, you can check out my website for my interview with Jerome Corsi, or you can check out my YouTube channel for a video of the same. But this article is extremely important in that it gets to the heart of the reason that this engineered recession is taking place. Why would the financial oligarchs be interested in bringing about the death of the U.S. dollar as the world economic reserve currency? Well, let's take a look at this article to find out why. It reads in part, quote, The single currency and a new economic order is a major step on the road to global governance. Europe already has its own strong single currency, while the dollar's days seem to be numbered. When money is being printed and distributed by private corporations, is it any surprise to see a push for a merger with other countries' currencies? Talk has long been of a global currency by 2018 if plans go accordingly. A 1988 famous cover of The Economist emphasized this, depicting a phoenix standing atop burning paper money symbolizing its rise out of their destruction, with the words, get ready for a world currency next to it. The article carried in The Economist, titled Get Ready for the Phoenix, stated that 30 years from now, Americans, Japanese, Europeans, and people in many other rich countries, and some relatively poor ones, will probably be paying for their shopping with the same currency. The article went on to state that sovereignty will be lost with the advent of the new currency, but that trends towards globalization are already doing away with it anyway. The Phoenix Zone would impose tight constraints on national governments. There would be no such thing, for instance, as a national monetary policy. The world Phoenix supply would be fixed by a new central bank, descended perhaps from the IMF. The world inflation rate, and hence within narrow margins, each national inflation rate, would be in its charge. Each country could use taxes and public spending to offset temporary falls in demand, but it would have to borrow rather than print money to finance its budget deficit. With no recourse to the inflation tax, governments and their creditors would be forced to judge their borrowing and lending plans more carefully than they do today. This means a big loss of economic sovereignty, but the trends that make the Phoenix so appealing are taking that sovereignty away in any case. Even in a world of more or less floating exchange rates, individual governments have seen their policy independence checked by an unfriendly outside world. Pencil in the Phoenix for around 2018, and welcome it when it comes, the article concludes. In 2004, Robert Mundell, the Nobel Prize-winning economist often credited with paving the way to the European single currency, called for a global currency. In an interview with French paper Libération, Mundell said, With the emergence of the euro and its instability against the dollar, Europe, the United States, and the Asian powers should come together and create a new international monetary system. Last May, the first steps towards the biggest cooperative unit there has ever been were cemented with the groundwork being set for an EU-US single market. However, as the CFR would say, amidst the booming, buzzing confusion few have noticed. Jerome Corsi concluded by reiterating that the economic crisis has been manufactured in order to provide the pre-scripted neo-mercantilist solution. We'd never get rid of the sovereignty of the United States or the dollar unless there was a crisis. The Council on Foreign Relations two issues ago 
Ben Steele, one of their top economists, wrote an article openly declaring that national monetary systems were dead and that we need to go to regional monies and that we need to go to global monies. We're going to be told very quickly that the only way the federal government can protect us is if we allow the federal government to become a North American government. End quote. Again, that article is extremely important in understanding the key to the engineered recession and perhaps the engineered depression which we are about to experience. And that is that the death of the dollar would be a great thing for those globalist financial oligarchs who seek to consolidate power in a global government administered by a global currency. Indeed, this is an important step in the creation of that regional North American currency, the Amero, which we've already heard about from episode 13 of the Corbett Report, and which would be the linchpin of the North American Union, which the financial oligarchs are hoping to bring in behind the scenes under the guise of the SPP, the Security and Prosperity Partnership. This is a key point, and I want to stress it again. I want you to know who is causing this depression and who to blame when it happens. The Federal Reserve, puppeteered by those in charge of the private banks which actually own the shares in the Federal Reserve system, are the ones that are doing this, and they're doing it for a reason. The death of the dollar will be a great thing for the globalists who seek to create a global control grid for their banking interests. These are monopoly men, and they will not brook any ideas of national economic sovereignty or someone who will stand up against their system. And that's why it's the duty of the citizens of these nations, while the nations still are alive, to do their homework and discover what is going on on the financial level to make this trend to world government happen. Again, all I can exhort you to do is to do your own research into some of the issues raised in today's episode. And one possible place that I could suggest as a starting point for your research is an article written by the Corbett Report this week entitled, Ron Paul is the only candidate who can avert a depression. Please take a look at that article, follow some of the links, and see for yourself if some of these things are indeed coming to pass. That's it for this week. Thank you for joining me, and join me again next week for another episode of The Corbett Report. What was the Great Depression? I hope we learned our lesson. Cause it was a hard time, hard to make progression. What was the Great Depression? I hope we learned our lesson. They had a sad face. It was the only expression. What was the Great Depression? I hope we learned our lesson. Cause it was a hard time, hard to make progression. What was the Great Depression? I hope we learned our lesson. They had a sad face. It was the only expression. The crash of the stock exchange didn't help that much. They tried to find a solution, couldn't figure out what. By the early 1930s, it was the Great Depression. Period of failed businesses, there was no question. Massive unemployment quickly swept the land. It affected us for years. We couldn't understand. Five thousand banks have failed. Many companies closed. The problems of jobs and more problems arose. Many families really they lost their homes and schools had to close. You know we had to go. Americans couldn't figure out a way to grow. So I guess the economy was moving too slow. It was the Great Depression. I hope we learned that lesson. Cause it was a hard time, hard to make progression. What was the Great Depression? I hope we learned that lesson. They had a sad face. It was the only expression. What was the great depression? I hope we learned that lesson. Mr. Greenspan, will you deny that the Rothschild family and the Rockefeller family owns much of the stock of the Federal Reserve Bank, sir? Okay. Mr. Greenspan, what is the relationship with the Federal Reserve Bank and the Bank of International Settlements in Switzerland, sir? What's that relationship, sir? You have publicly admitted, sir, that the Federal Reserve caused the Great Depression. Can you guarantee the American people that they will not? Uh, 
cause another Great Depression here, sir? American people like to know the answer, sir. Have a good day, Mr. Greenspan.